Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Hey, David, how you doing today? I'm good, Jeremy. How are you, my friend? I'm doing my best. I'm down here in Florida, and it is raining per usual, but that means it won't be so hot later this evening. How are the Braves? Uh, at this moment, they are closing out one of their best years ever and uh, heading into the playoffs. But we do have some injured pitchers, so we're a little concerned about the playoffs right now. Mm. Do you think we'll be able to do it again? Um, it's it's a roll of the dice, but if justice prevails, the Braves will win <laughs> their, their second World Series in the last uh, three years. The so. kingdom will come. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, yeah, so here I collapse all of my caution about kingdoms of this world and kingdom of God. If the Braves win, we have a victory for the kingdom of God. You heard it here first, people, on the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. The Yeah, we're discussing democracy this season. I will never forget in my Christian leadership class at the McAfee School of Theology, my professor um, was talking about the election of Jimmy Carter, and he said he wept. When Jimmy Carter won, a Baptist in office, the kingdom had arrived. Everything was going to be set right with the world. <laughs> yes, we. Uh, there's so much to be said about the nuance of how do you care deeply about political life without, without ever uh, absolutizing anything that happens in human affairs. Right. And that is hard. We, people really struggle with that. And we're, we're sort of talking about that today as we continue sort of our brisk sprint through the new book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. When, when will that be available? Now. Now? It's up on Amazon. It's up on Amazon. And in fact, they're shipping early. And it's showing up in Barnes & Noble bookstores all over the country. That's in, that is early. That's incredible. Yes. So... Um, uh, Shameless yeah. plug. Go buy a copy. Yes. In fact, if you buy it at a Barnes & Noble, then they'll restock, right? So um, that's good for us. Um, so yes, uh, every you know independent bookstores, Amazon, and even Barnes & Noble that always needs our business. So go for it. Excellent. So we are discussing democracy and the church and Christian ethics and the way of Jesus and how they tie together and why it matters and why we should care. The And we're sort of going, if you're following along in the book, this could be a really good companion this season of the podcast, because we are sort of going chapter by chapter. So today we reach our discussion around chapter two, which is about alternatives to democracy and sort of the threats that are perceived against it. So when, when we talk about democracy, we already defined it last episode, what sort of alternatives tend to creep up in human culture? Um, let me quote Winston Churchill for the first time ever on our podcast. Okay? <laughs> and maybe the last? Probably. He said in 1947, I wish I could do my British accent, but it's just not coming to me today, okay? <laughs> Thank God. Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic quote. Reminds yeah. me of, I think it was Schaefer said 
when I was young, I left the church because of how little grace I found there, but I returned because there was no grace to be found anywhere else. Mm, yeah. Um, and C.S. Lewis wrote, I am a Democrat, little d, because I believe in the fall of man. Hmm. What, what do you think he means by that? If man has fallen, why should he get a vote? <laughs> because um, fallen people uh, who end up having absolute power are absolutely dangerous. Hmm. So you, you might say, <laughs> what democracy, and here was the Christian insight behind democracy, one of them. Well, I'll, I'll quote Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, we're going big, so let's do some Reinhold Niebuhr today. He wrote, and sorry for the gender-exclusive quotes, it was, that was the day, but he wrote, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. Hmm. In all non-democratic political theories, the state or the ruler is invested with uncontrolled power for the sake of achieving order and unity in the community. But the pessimism which prompts and justifies this policy is not consistent, for it is not applied as it should be to the ruler. So the history of, of human politics, with a few rare exceptions, has been the history of centralized power. The power of the absolute sovereign, the monarch, the dictator, the king, the queen, or perhaps the, the military warlord. You might say the strongest bully in the community with the best weapons mm -hmm. right? um, or the emperor who is able to consolidate control, not just over one family, tribe, community or region, but over many. Um, and you can see um, that it was really the agricultural revolution in the ancient world that um, that was able to uh, facilitate the development of modern or of early and eventually modern city states, which tended to then be led by local nobles and military leaders, and finally by monarchs or dictators who were the top guy on the hierarchy. And then if they got militarily strong enough, they formed emperors. And this you can see this as far back as 2300 BC. Um, and so if, if you know those who study the Hebrew Bible get used to the march of the empires, right? Mm -hmm. Because they intersect with the Jewish people. So you have, you know, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, and of course, in there you have the Egyptians as well. All uh, absolute uh, power, or nearly absolute power, in one dynastic ruler, and and that person could rule by decree often. Um, with the absolute power over life and death. Look at King Herod killing John the Baptist. He was a minor. King Herod was a minor king compared to the ones we're talking about. Mm -hmm. a, a regional leader of a vassal state. That's it. A regional leader of a vassal state. And he's able to kill John the Baptist because he's pretty fired up at a dance party. right? Yeah. And John the Baptist is dead. Jesus executed um, no rule of law relevant. The... the Procurator decrees it, and he's dead. There's actually, there was an interesting experiment in, in uh, direct democracy in ancient Greece. It was, this was Athenian democracy. And the classicists are the ones who really study this. But, you know, from, you know, 500, 400, 300 BC, the, the Athenians attempted direct democracy. 
and it was generally believed to be a failed experiment, though it lasted for a long time, fairly long time. Eventually, um, uh, it went away. The Romans tried a republic with chat, which had democratic elements, including a Senate, but it was really more of an oligarchy. Mm-hmm. And then the republican form of Roman government was uh, uh, basically eaten up by, uh, uh, you know, it was overthrown and it became absolute rule of a dictator. A strong man was able to grab that pendulum. And just hold on to it from that point forward. But also the Roman Republican government wasn't working very well, so it was vulnerable to to that happening. So the rule of the Caesars. Um, and that, you know, by the way, our, you know, our, uh, our Star Wars kind of, you know, you have Emperor Palpatine and, and the end of the, what was it? Is it called the Republic? And then it's the Yeah, Empire? the Galactic Republic is replaced by the Galactic Empire. Right. It, that's really a riff on Roman history. Mm-hmm. So you don't really have the, the stirrings of anything like modern democracy. I mean, I, I was able to find some random things like um, Iceland in the 10th century had some stirrings of democracy. And, you know, the Magna Carta in the 13th century in England. Um, but it was really the anti-monarchical revolutions in the U.S. and in France that really got modern democracy going. And and then after that, democracy spread as the preferred political system gradually. Um, uh, seriously challenged in the early uh, 20th century by communism and by fascism. Um, communism essentially collapsed everywhere outside of a few places in the 19 late 80s, early 90s. Fascism was believed to have collapsed after the close of World War II. Um, and democracy was on the march. And and now neo-fascist kind of and Christian kind of Christian monarchy ideas and so on. These are kind of really being circulated again in a number of different places. So the wheel of history doesn't, I don't know, it just kind of rolls and rolls. And you see some, you know, there are um, echoes of the past, I think, and where we are finding ourselves right now. I want to tip my hand about my adolescent libertarianism the sure. while my friends had posters of Lindsay Lohan and Megan Fox on their walls i had a full po- framed full poster size movie poster size magna carta and bill of rights in my bedroom wow what did that mean <laughs> to you at that time why because i wanted to feel smarter than everyone else well you were that of course you were. So that's interesting. And what I would say is, let's not call that libertarianism. Let's call that proto proto or early democracy. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was like a virtue signaling of my conservatism is what I was doing it for. Well, I'll tell you what, I would take a conservatism that is thinking hard about the Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights. I'd sit there and read them. <laughs> So I could see them from my bed. Because they were, they were, let's call it, well, here's another way to say it. Early liberalism gave birth to both conservative politics and progressive politics. Right. It was before our left-right split. Okay. And to the extent that it was about limiting the sovereign, um, re- 
uh, restricting the abs any kind of absolutist rule, uh, requiring things like if you are arrested, you can have legal representation in a fair trial. Um, you don't just disappear. You don't just disappear, right? Individual rights charters are honored. The sovereign can't just do anything. The people get a voice in a parliament. Um, so rule of, as I said last time, rule of the people and the rule of law, as opposed to the rule of the sovereign and the law is whatever the sovereign decrees. So why in our contemporary political space are people drifting away from democracy? If That's it is great so question. great. Um, well, sometimes democracies are slow, cumbersome, and ineffective. Um, this is one of the oldest problems of democracy. You, you, know, you go to a church business meeting and people can't agree on what color the carpet should be. Mm -hmm. Church so is split gonna, over the carpet. Yeah, so we're going to debate for months on what color or whatever. It's cumbersome. It's easier for one person just to say how it's going to be. Right. Um, differences of opinion. Um, partisan factionalism is a huge problem. If you end up with like two or three groups that end up hating each other above all. Which, of course, never happens in a church. I'm glad that never happens in a church. Um, Jeremy is smiling, listeners. Um, <laughs> the pastor gets the joke. <laughs> um, then. Then. People can hate each other more than they can love the community as a whole. Mm. Um, all we want is for your side to lose. That's partisan factionalism. That's a real besetting problem for democracies. Um, uh, a sense that maybe the Constitution needs some revision and we can't seem to get it revised. Right. Um, but for this, this authoritarian reactionary Christianity that I'm talking about, the main concern is none of those things. The main concern is we're not getting the policy results in the cultural environment that we want. Hmm. Um, we would like to be able to have the teacher stand at the front of class in a public school and say a prayer in Jesus' name. And they're not allowed to do that, supposedly. And we would like to have the, um, the, the class day include instruction in... Um, the teachings or the doctrine of Jesus, and they're not allowed to do that. Um, and we would like to not have to tolerate open expressions of homosexuality, and we have to. And we would like to live in a world where there is no abortion and it's allowed. And, um, and maybe if white supremacy and racism has gotten in there, we would like a government that preserved the privileges of white people or even did not allow other people to have leadership or even to be here, right? Or we would like a society in which only men were allowed to lead because that's what the Bible says, right? In other words, the way that American culture has liberalized, pluralized, democratized, um, the way it has evolved and the way the laws reflect the will of the people majorities of the people not agreeing with what conservative Christians want, those are some reasons why there's this negative reaction against democracy. Some people have power who shouldn't have power is the idea. Some things are allowed that shouldn't be allowed. Some things are not allowed that should be allowed. 
and we don't like it. We want to take the country back. In the the work by Whitehead and Perry on um, Christian nationalism or Christian nationism, they use a phrase that I want to find here, identitarian. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. Um, that, that's the thing, right? Like, the one of the hot button words for all the talking points is identity politics. Yes. So one way to the one way that has uh, evolved is so let's say the conservative critique is that American politics is all about identity now. It's about uh, people of different races or genders or sexualities claiming their identity and wanting to celebrate and make a big fuss over their identity, right? Um, and to have their identity um, validated by the society. Protected. Protected. Special class. Right. right. And That's um, the fear. And so that's the fear. And so so there's a kind of a... At first there was a, we should stop doing this identity stuff and just return to American melting pot and we're all the same and we're just Americans. Um, but now there's a kind of a... There's like a Christian identitarian pushback. Um, and it's not, but it's not just Christian. Christian, it may even be the most superficial of these identities. It's white. It may be Southern. It may be country or rural. Uh, so it's regional. It, it's a geographical. It's religious. It's racial. It may be economic. Um, and and Christian nationism or Christian nationalism is in a sense about we want we want control. We want our identity group to be celebrated and to be actually in control the way it should be, the way it used to be. Hmm. And um, and so you have the nostalgia and the despair and the anger. Um, now I'm saying that Christianity really has nothing to do with that. I mean, Jesus has nothing to do with that. Right. Jesus doesn't care about white people being in charge or men being in charge or 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 people who are native born being in charge as opposed to people who are immigrant. None of that. Jesus, in fact, I would say quite the opposite. Jesus, Jesus' ministry was inclusive in ways that challenge all of that. So part of what I deal with in the book is Christian nationism or Christian nationalism or authoritarian reactionary Christian politics, it's a very thin, at best, understanding of Christianity that we're talking about there. In fact, it's an overlay. It's more of a of a tribalizing of the identity Christian than it has anything to do with Jesus. In fact, I think Jesus himself and his teachings are most inconvenient for this vision. Oh, we've seen that recently. There's been those stories about pastors... Uh, being fired for teaching Jesus and being told that they're being soft or liberal right? just for quoting Jesus. Yes, and you see that on Twitter routinely. Somebody just quotes something from Jesus and they're called woke or liberal. So this, by the way, is something that I saw when studying pre-Nazi and early Nazi Germany. Hitler and his movement um, routinely, like they said in the 1920 party platform, we are for positive Christianity. 1920. But positive Christianity went on to say, insofar as it is not a threat to the German nation or something like that. 
So this is a, a decapitated Christianity, a kind of a, um, a tribalized, racialized, nationalized, mm-hmm. quote unquote. I call it in the book quasi-Christianity. Yeah, you can sort of put a Jesus fish sticker on your flag. Yeah. Yeah, a little Jesus fish sticker on your your flag. Um, and that flag may be a Trump flag or a Confederate flag or an American flag or a Don't Tread on Me flag or all of them. It's just all kind of in there together. That is, dare I say it, heretical and very dangerous. And that's part of what has to be critiqued. So in my, in a sense, my book is dealing with both the degradation of Christian identity by this movement and the damage in our politics. It's really both. One of the most interesting things that I've seen uh, researchers discover over the past 10 years is that we are far as people, they're studying Americans, but we are, far more willing to change our religious ideas and identities than our political ones. Yeah. In fact, I've been reading that some scholars think that actually it's the decline of the salience of Christian, real Christian commitment that is as is playing a role in contributing to this. Hmm. If Jesus following is fading, if passion about Jesus is fading, you might say some of that energy is being displaced elsewhere, but it's on politics, but it's being displaced while bringing along some of the trappings of religiosity with it. So you can feel religious because you're at some kind of political rally and somebody says a prayer or waves a Christian flag or, or has a cross. Um, and that is, as I said, genuinely dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something like, that I've been saying for a while is that it seems that our re- our politics has become religious and our religion has become politics. Yeah, and our devotion to Christ can't survive that. And this, by the way, is something that is part of the, the paradox of this moment. And we often lack language for it, but some of the people who are most appalled by, for example, ultra-MAGA Trumpism or whatever, are the most devoted Christian types who have enough of that old-time religion in them Hmm. that they know kind of heretical drift when they see it. They feel it in their bones. Um, These are people who kind of know, okay, whatever this is, this is not Jesus. They don't have to be theologians. They can get it. They can be regular old people, you know, grandma, whoever, who just says, no, 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 this is not Jesus. This is something unholy. I see this. uh, we, our faith should have produced an allergy to, to that, and that allergy, you know, in the conservative part of America, where I've seen that allergy most, more often to happen, is among Mormons, hmm. among evangelicals. Somebody like a Mitt Romney, he always knew, no, 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 this is not okay. He knew. And we, we uh, see it yeah. on both extremes, that the the commitment to party and to ideology has become the most important thing about who you are. Like we used to say things like the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think about God. But now it's more like the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about politics on both sides. Yeah. It's a shibboleth. Marrying 
marrying and divorcing based on that and uh, moving geographically based on that and associating in friendships based on that and going to church based on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. So democracy doesn't do well in such an environment, but neither does true Christianity. Folks, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we will be releasing these on a regular schedule that I will share with you soon. We are very excited uh, to have this conversation and we want to hear back from you. You can find David and myself at our respective websites. They're easy to find because there are names, davidpgushy.com and revjeremyhall.com. We have uh, various projects that we've been working on that we'd love to share with you. And uh, we want your feedback on those and this. So find us on socials, message us through those uh, websites. We want to hear from you and we want to respond. We look forward to sharing this journey with you and we will see you soon. Thank you for listening. This is Kingdom Ethics.